beauty helps to inspire carving out safe spaces where people can come together to to hear each other or to hear somebody else's story or to tell their own story or to eat food together or to have a dance party or to really like get into the the science of a place. This week on Interstates, we're talking with Monique Verdin, who lives at the end of the Mississippi, about a couple cities and vaster, two rivers and a watershed. We talk about facing disaster, what that puts into focus, and the importance of beauty, even when fighting big issues. We also hear from Liz Brownlee about the Muscatatuck River here in Indiana, and from Yael Cassander about a new novel connecting Indiana and Mexico. That's all coming up right after this. It's raining a light rain, carving green channels deep into the summer waters where Bayou Shupik crosses under Esplanade Avenue in Balbuncha, a place the colonizers rebranded as New Orleans. Above the dusty waters, darkening only faintly when the clouds pass over. Above the clanging tugboats and glistening Mississippi, above the slow, muddy waters of a nearby coastal marsh where the last remnants of land nestled behind the glimmering sliver of levees is turning to dust. Above the portage roads, their memories of Shakta and Shunamacha songs. Above the shrimp boats leaving It's raining in New Orleans. New Maybe it's raining where you are too. If so, there's a not insignificant chance that that rain is going to end up in the Mississippi River to flow eventually through New Orleans. The rain loves the afternoon and the tall... That's because a third of the continental U.S. is part of the river's watershed. I want to spend some time with watersheds today, the Mississippi in particular, but I hope it gets you thinking about your watershed, wherever you are. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. Today's episode starts at Watershed Weekend. That was an event put on by Exhibit Columbus in Columbus, Indiana, in the fall of 2021. The event was at the Columbus Pump House, which um, had a busy road on one side and a bridge across the East Fork of the White River nearby. You'll get lots of cars in the background today. Seasons, peoples, The event was a chance for people to talk about the connections between water systems and people and histories in different regions. Because all those things are very connected. It is in the name of rivers that traces of indigenous ancestors survive. Chattahoochee, Hawassi, Mississippi, Missouri, Tennessee, the water. Seeking its own level in places near and far. How old are these cycles of rain to river to ocean to rain again, flowing also within our bodies, from our pores, and from our eyes? This is a poem by Nick Sly, an actor and writer in New Orleans, and it's being read by Monique Verdin. I am a citizen of the United Homa Nation, and I live at the end of the Mississippi River near the Gulf of Mexico. Monique had come to Columbus to help lead a storytelling workshop about watersheds. After she read the poem, she asked everyone there to get into a couple of circles. I think that lots of times we go to things and uh, we want to just be observers, but we're asking you to come into the process to be part of this work with us because tonight we're making an art piece that you will be a co-collaborator of. 
The prompt was for us to tell a story about a time we were in the Mississippi watershed. So we got into a couple of circles and told some stories. I've lived in the watershed my entire life. I started in Indianapolis. Uh, White River runs through, and I moved to Lafayette, which has the Wabash River. Moved to Rochester, Minnesota, which the Mississippi runs near. Uh, The Eagle Center and the Eagles there are very beautiful. Uh, When I retired, we moved back here to uh, actually Greenwood, the Indianapolis area. So I've always been close to the Mississippi watershed. It was soon after my father passed away. My mother brought the family together and said, I'm going to take you on a cruise. And we went, ooh. And of course we were thinking Caribbean or something. And it turned out it was a cruise up the Mississippi. (laughs) But it it turned out to be um, a really stunning landscape, lovely, quiet, silent eagles, lots of eagles, barges that were stuck. It was lovely in a way that we didn't expect. My river story goes back to the beginning of my career. I was at the confluence of the Illinois and Mississippi River. We were designing the Swan Lake Habitat Rehabilitation Project. And this was the pre-project period when it was supposed to be degraded and horrible. And we were gonna come in and fix it because I'm the Corps of Engineers concretizer of the world. And um, we had a good hard design for this project. And we went in and all I can say was it was 13 miles of ducks. We were in a boat driving up this lake 13 miles long. And as you got there, the ducks flew up and the ducks kept flying up for 13 miles. We did our job and we turned around and ducks flew up for 13 miles back. It's not a lake anymore now. It's a seasonal marsh full of Asian carp and they use it to kill Asian carp. And it's still good duck habitat, but it's not good fish habitat. Someone was talking about how gentle and quiet and um, serene and reflective, all those sort of adjectives. Um, The the piece of my story that I didn't tell was that my mother and father had planned. My dad really wanted to go on on a cruise up the Mississippi. That was the kind of guy he was. So you said that it was the space you were designing was not good for carp like you were sending it was a big graveyard for carp but like, oh was, well, that, was that by design well we well so we don't like asian carp on uh-huh. illinois because they're invasive species and no it's completely by accident that we put in a fish passage structure so that paddlefish could go in and out but the paddlefish don't like that structure so they don't go in and out anymore but the asian carp do and when the asian carp get trapped in there we're drawing it down to grow wetland habitat anyways. It's a seasonal, we, we simulate the flood cycle. So we let it flood in the spring and then we take the water off in the summer and let it turn into a wetland. So when the carp get in there, they're just trapped and we take the water off and they die and they become recycled back into the system. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> While we listened to the stories, we were looking at the watershed itself or I should say a model of it. 
It was a 3D scale model of the entire Mississippi River watershed, carved out of rigid insulation foam. It's vertically exaggerated about 200 times. So just to kind of give it more of both a human scale, but also just to under, otherwise it would be relatively flat as a model. And it's 800,000 times smaller than the real thing. So that's the scale. Derek Hefferlin is a professor of landscape architecture and urban design at Washington University in St. Louis in the upper Mississippi watershed. The piece he's describing is called Tracing Our Mississippi. Those foam landscapes stood on tables. There were little red pieces all over the white hills. Those were the lock and dam structures across the watershed. You could also see crude oil pipelines and former indigenous lands and current tribal reservations. There are a lot of locks and dams. You really get a sense of how controlled the Mississippi Basin is. And that's part of the point. Derek wanted to convey the relentless control of the Mississippi's landscapes for developmental gain, as he put it. Relentless control by way of locks and dams and, at the southern end of the river, the levees that keep the river from flooding. But also, all that sediment from a third of the United States just gets pushed farther into the Gulf. It matters that the river used to flood. It helped create new land, which was important, since southern Louisiana is constantly sinking into the Gulf. Over the past half century, that's been happening faster and faster. It's one of the things Monique is concerned about. She's a photographer, writer, and documentarian. After the story circles, she and I sat down to talk more about land loss, the Mississippi River as a body and system, how we control water, and how she feels about the water covering more and more of her homeland in southern Louisiana. When I first started to to do documentary work in the late 90s, it was focused on uh, land loss and environmental conditions like oil waste pits in my cousin's backyards. That was kind of fueling my fire, in a sense, to do the work that has led me here. But I think that what's happened over the last two decades is that the the river keeps bringing me back and connecting me with networks, um, with individuals, Um, And just with my own relationship and respect and awareness about the importance of water and how the Mississippi River is a life force that is, you know, my life force, but for, for so many other living beings, too. And I think that, yeah, the 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 Mississippi River has just become an anchor in a sense, like this flowing anchor in my life where I the more I think about it the more I've been able to to connect and to understand how all of the intersectional complexities and infinite beauty of place and places are part of the same body. One of the things that I was curious to think about is, so here we are in Southern Indiana, in Columbus, and I wonder if you've had thoughts about the connections with of this place with the river basin in general with your place your home cruising from indianapolis to columbus and seeing the farmlands and thinking about how 
the cycles of season and also supply and demand and how in the Delta, we have petrochemical facilities that are creating fertilizers that are getting pushed upriver to, you know, be part of the fertilizers for farms. Then that runoff goes back into the Mississippi and... Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, the, the cycles of, of how fertilizers with all of this nitrogen runs off into the watershed, which then comes back down river and empties out into the Gulf of Mexico. And every year we're having these um, enormous algal blooms that kill all of the, or sucks all of the oxygen out of the water and is, is, makes it not possible for life to be in those spaces, hence the dead zone name. Um, so much of my life I've been, um, or my, so much of my adult life, I've been saying that, you know, I live in the heart of Cancer Alley, just north of the dead zone, where we're experiencing the most rapid land loss on the planet, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, there are other places that are experiencing rapid land loss in extreme ways too, but um, especially for the United States, you know, we are like ground zero for land loss. And I felt very much so that my work has been just trying to raise awareness so that people understand that this is happening and that Louisiana matters, not just because I call Louisiana home, but Louisiana matters because it's connected to these bigger global systems that are part of the problem. And I'm at a point in my life where uh, I think it's important for us to understand how we got here, but I've been leaning more into where do we go from here and what are solutions that we can start implementing. And the river has to be a top priority if anything else is going to work. I mean, we need, we need fresh water. We need clean water. We need not just for you know, the fact that my water intake is coming from the Mississippi River, which is pretty gross when you say I live in Cancer Alley and you have all these refineries and um, that are just dumping whatever it is out of their facilities into the river. Yeah, whenever I think of that, I get really kind of oh. like, <laughs> we're so screwed up. <laughs> like, what is wrong with us? <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm like, oh. I mean, I don't have any answers. I don't think I have answers. I have a lot of questions. And I think that what is really great about being able to be part of this Watershed Weekend series of conversations here for Exhibit Columbus is just that we need to create space to talk about it and to to think of the river as one body and that what happens upstream affects downstream and vice versa. Okay, it's time for a short break. You've been listening to Monique Verdin, a citizen of the United Homa Nation who lives at the end of the Mississippi River. We're talking about making connections up and downstream in the Mississippi River watershed, which includes about a third of the continental U.S. This is Interstates. We'll be right back. 
It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and we're talking with Monique Verdin about the Mississippi River watershed. I had mentioned the problem of fertilizer runoff from Midwestern farms, and she pointed out something I hadn't realized about the fertilizer cycle. From what I understand, most of the fertilizers that are being used in the Midwest are being created in the Delta. But you, can, you should fact-check me on that. Sure. Sure. <laughs> okay, real quick, I did some fact-checking, and I couldn't get hard numbers, but I did confirm that southeastern Louisiana is an important producer of anhydrous ammonia, which is a significant source of nitrogen fertilizer. Okay, back to Monique. Yeah, so that, that cycle of the, the petrochemical fertilizers coming upstream, then running off, going back downstream, right. you know, that's one way we're connected. I think that Another way that we can think about water systems on a planetary scale, just in regards to the air we breathe, that fresh water comes down, it goes into the Gulf of Mexico, it starts to evaporate, it gets into the clouds, it comes back down, like those cycles that we forget we're a part of and that clouds travel very far and, you know my Mississippi River water might be your rain one day, kind of, you know, it's kind of magical to think about and scary in regards to the kinds of chemicals that are in our system. (laughs) (laughs) Or one system, if we're thinking about it like as a body, you know. (laughs) True, very true. When you started thinking about this, you were really trying to... um... Save the wetlands. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I thought it was about the wetlands, really. Uh, In the late 90s, I was thinking about how I really wanted these toxic waste facilities that were near my family's community of Grand Bois in the heart of, you know, the Mississippi River Delta, how they were poisoning people, still are there poisoning people. And then I realized, oh... The more time I spent in the traditional territories of my grandparents and with my my extended relatives, I realized that waste pits were, yeah, they're a problem. But this extreme loss of land was a bigger issue that was really hard to get my head around. And and then putting all the pieces together of like, oh, well, you know. It started with levying the Mississippi River, then the extraction, then the, you know, name your disaster. That's common sense. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, and this is partly because I've paid some attention to, like, your earlier work. There was this sense of, like, a need to, like, tell people about the bad things. And I'm curious if you've, over the years of doing this work, moved into other ways of thinking about how we do whatever we call it again, like activism or, and I I think what I'm sort of curious about is like joy and love and sort of where those things might play in as well. I have felt like chicken little most of my adult life, you know, the, the land is sinking, the oil is coming, the, you know, the storm is about to hit, the seas are rising. All of that has been, I feel like I've been waving the flag of like alarm. And I didn't have the language to call it climate change 15 years ago. You know, I talked about it in a sense of land loss and extraction. Um, 
I did this project called Cry You One in 2013. It premiered in my home community of St. Bernard Parish. And it was a mile and a half, part procession, part theater, part eco experience, walking on a earthen levee that bordered a ghost forest that led to a pumping station where baby cypress trees were growing. And that experience for me was the first time I had ever worked in the world of theater. And at the end of the day, someone would come up always and say, how was the show? And I'd be like, well, we got 65 people to like go take a walk in the nature with us. It was great, you know, and to really be there and to appreciate the beauty and the loss and to to recognize that we need space to mourn and to create safe spaces to have real conversations about what it is that matters. And I think whenever disaster strikes, for example, on August 29th, there was Hurricane Ida came ashore 16 years to the day that Hurricane Katrina came ashore. And it's in those moments of disaster when what really matters comes into focus. Do I have water? How am I going to keep my food? Do I have food? Where am I going to use the bathroom becomes an issue. You know, all of these things that we take for granted on the daily suddenly are right there. And also, who, who is your community becomes the number one. And so I'm grateful for, for those moments. And I think that in my life right now, I've been trying to lean into how through community and how through collaboration, we can start to experiment with what might be possible if we're really going to, to build bridges to have real just transitions that that are long lasting and aren't just like a flash in the pan of a greenwash moment. And so I've been really excited to, to work on this new project with Mondo Bizarro Productions. It's a, it's in process and who knows where it will lead. It'll probably be a decade or more long project, but it's called Invisible Rivers. And we're, we're really wanting to, visibilize what has been silenced and also to to recognize that there are many stories about a place and many truths to a place and to experiment with how we learn to live with water instead of how to control it all the time and how the stories of the past can help to inform the visions for the future as well. And also wanting to work with young people, specifically fourth graders, <laughs> through a project that, uh, well, it's a program called, what are they? An organization called Ripple Effect, which is a water literacy curriculum building organization. And so I think that fourth graders are really my audience, you know, it's, and also my collaborator. Like I want to, you know, it's how do we... How do we world build, you know, and how do we start with the with the young people who are unfortunately inheriting this like mess of a place that we call planet Earth? And also, the more I've learned about all of the 
complicated, ugly, problematic parts of history that have gotten us here. I've also been able to recognize the infinite beauty that is also present around me. And so, yeah, I think that that beauty helps to inspire carving out safe spaces where people can come together to to hear each other or to hear somebody else's story or to tell their own story or to eat food together or to have a dance party or um, or to really like get into the the science of a place. And I think that I am still learning what the dynamics of a delta and what a riverine system and what riparian zones mean. And I think that it's, I wish that someone would have informed me of all of these in small pieces even, but that these complex systems that are all around us that we take for granted are, are crucial for not only my well-being and my community's well-being, but so many other living beings' well-being and for the well-being of the water. All the well-being of the water. I like that too. I mean, just that the water itself is a being that needs to be well. And that we should be respecting the rights of nature, the rights of the rivers, the rights of the oceans, and human beings have have just tried to control and dominate and and look where it's led us. I mean, in South Louisiana, what took Mother Nature five to 8,000 years to create, human beings have screwed it up to the point that we don't even know what to do or where to try to put the Band-Aid for triage. And that's been the last 100 years of of really extraction and industrial expansion that has has gotten us to this vulnerable place. Which again, I feel like is the case, you know, on some level in so many places, but at South Louisiana is like a ground zero of, of all of that. Unfortunately, South Louisiana has a really good place if you need a bad example of like what you shouldn't do. That performance that Monique talked about, Cry You One, I got to see it in Connecticut a while back, and it ended with a funeral celebration for the land. Because even a moonshot isn't going to stop all of what's left of Louisiana's coast from going under. When you're constantly being reminded by the scientists and also by just witnessing the loss of land and more water being present in places. I'm 41 years old and I can tell you, oh yeah, I remember there was land there and it's not there anymore. Um, if I was, you know, a grandma in my 80s, like maybe that'd be okay, but it's happening. And, it, and, and I know actually teenagers who can also say that they remember when they were able to go play in the back of, Punishment, and they don't go there anymore because it's become water. Um, and so I've been wrestling with, you know, do I stay? Do I keep a foot in the ground? 
But I also, every hurricane season, pack my car with all the things that are precious to me and I have to go and go where is always a big question. I don't, up until this past year, well, just to back up. Um, so the state of Louisiana essentially has been rolling out these scenarios of lift your house 20 feet into the sky or leave if you're in coastal territories and warning that not all communities will be able to be protected or saved. So, and that's been very clear and that's been for quite some time. I live just inside levee protection. Actually, they don't call it protection. They call it risk reduction <laughs> because <laughs> they cannot promise protection. They can only reduce risk. And where my family home is, we had 11 feet of water with Hurricane Katrina. And so since that time, I've thought about having a place to retreat to. And also wondering what it means to retreat and return, if that's what's in my, I mean, that has been my way of life for many years, but to be more conscious of that and knowing that that's going to be forever. So I, just before Hurricane Ida hit, put in an offer on 12 acres of land that's just north of Lafayette, Louisiana, and Ida hit a few days later, I drove down delivered supplies of gas and water and basic needs that folks needed to have met. <laughs> and then I went up and signed for the land. And so now I, I do have a place to retreat to. It's not that far away, um, but it's far enough. It's not in a coastal territory, but it's not out of a floodplain. But you can't run from climate change. And when I think about my relatives who live on the bayous in Ponachan, Lafouche, uh, Dulac, you take them away from the bayou and you are taking them away from literally their, their ability to feed themselves and their families. And the bayou side is where people have their boats. It's where they have their Sunday family gatherings. It's where everything happens. And I think that for the Homa, our food security has been what has provided a sense of sovereignty all of these years. And the marsh is bountiful and has so much to provide and also has been so abused for decades um, since the early 1900s. And, you know, even before we could say, <laughs> but yeah, I think that I am leaning more towards how do we remain and reclaim, even if our territories do go underwater, that doesn't mean they aren't still sacred places. 
And I think just that access to natural resources is so important, not only for our ability to feed ourselves, but also for just mental health and wellness, you know, to be able to, to be able to be where your, where your family and where your way of life is rooted. Even though our ways of life are adapting and shifting, it's still, it's still rooted to a place. I'm really excited about the land. It's um, in a place called Prairie des Femmes, which means women's prairie. And it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I have no idea what will come of that place, but I do have every intention to make it a safe place, not only for myself to retreat to, but for community, for my family. When there's a hurricane, everyone gets scattered to the wind. And I think that, you know, we're already vulnerable. You put us out in the world without our people and we're just lost, you know? So I think it's, yeah, that's a... Uh, that's like my next 10 year project that and the, the float lab invisible rivers yeah. like you know let's build some gardens let's have some floating experiences and um yeah 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 dance parties more dance parties <laughs> more dance parties and you know whatever else it takes to keep you focused on what's actually important time with your people in a place that matters to you you're listening to Interstates. When we come back, a postcard from an Indiana river. This is Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and I want to share one more thing about rivers here in the Mississippi watershed. This is a postcard from Liz Brownlee. Liz is a friend of the show and a farmer in southern Indiana. And here she's thinking about how her land and water are connected to Monique Verdans down in the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I'm standing beside the Muscatatuck River as the last of the evening's light wanes. Um, I can see a few stars and the silhouette of silver maples around me, and the water's flowing by just quiet as can be. Um, I don't think we hear any frogs at all because it's pretty chilly tonight. Um, this water, it actually means quite a lot to me. Uh, I grew up here on my family's farm right beside the Muscatatuck River. Our, our land goes to the river's edge and, um, you know, as a kid, we didn't play in this river. We played in other rivers, in other parts of Indiana, in other states on vacation. Um, but it was always clear that this river was too dirty to swim in. Um, we didn't paddle here. We'd go other places to canoe, um, even other places within our county, but not this river. Um, and so to set the scene for you, 
you know, when I look south, um, the river's banks are denuded. All the trees have been cut on purpose. Um, the farmers want to farm to the very edge of the river. And, um, and that's really hard, <laughs> hard for me to swallow. My, uh, <laughs> my background is, is actually in biology and specifically thinking about where farming and rivers meet, um, and the importance of growing trees along our river's edges to hold the stream banks in place. But there's a ton of erosion here. Um, the stream banks are basically just mud, um, and the channel is incised, meaning it's because of all the energy of floods when they come through, um, the the river's like 10 feet below its banks. But the Muscatatuck actually floods here quite a lot. Um, thankfully, our side of the river is about 10 feet higher than the other side. Our banks are higher, and so we don't flood a lot. But boy, this other side, the bottoms, uh, it's underwater several times a year. Um, and water's powerful. <laughs> Um, and it goes in both directions. So the river, when it floods, it takes these huge trees um, and leaves them <laughs> in the farmer's fields. And every spring they have to come through and push those aside so they can grow corn and soybeans um, and burn them often. And then in the spring and summer, when heavy rains come, and it seems like there are heavier rains every year because of climate change, more intense rains all at once, I should say. When those intense rains come, all the fertilizer that the farmers just sprayed on their field, um, that flows right into this river, uh, about four feet from where my boots are right now. It goes downstream all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. You know, last summer was actually the first time I ever paddled this river. We had always avoided it because of all the chemicals in the water and because it's not very pretty, you know? A river with no trees along it, with just muddy banks, it's it's not much fun to paddle along. So we, we hadn't paddled here, even though I've canoed and kayaked many other rivers here in Indiana, along the Blue and along other parts of branches of the Muscatatuck and at the wildlife refuges near here and Graham Creek, and but not the river in my own backyard, my literal backyard. And so last summer we had family in town visiting and we said, you know, it hasn't rained in a while. There shouldn't have been much runoff recently. The water's probably in okay shape and we just, we just won't get in. We'll just paddle, but we won't like swim in it. <laughs> and um, so we came down with our four beat up old kayaks that we've amassed over the years. And two people had kayak paddles and two people had canoe paddles. And we'd heard that about a mile upstream, there's this place called the Rocks or the Falls. We had conflicting rumors, <laughs> but something worth seeing, something where the river wasn't just denuded banks. And so we paddled, and we only paddled for like maybe a half hour. I mean, it didn't take long at all. And there were all these rocks and uh, uh, rocky edges, boulders, almost a set of rapids. It was really beautiful. Trees on both sides, just for this little stretch. And the Muscatatuck, just for that little stretch, was beautiful. And I felt, I felt real joy that the river had this beautiful spot. Even if, you know, at my house, uh, opposite bank from us was denuded, at least this spot was beautiful. And at least we were growing trees on our side of the river and doing what we could on our portion of the river. And, and we are doing what we can on our portion of the river. So on our farm, we've converted all the corn and soybean land into perennials. 
Um, right here by the river, that means a lot of it's pasture where we raise livestock, but we keep a buffer uh, where we don't go right up to the river's edge. We've actually put all that land into a, a wetland restoration program. My family did that back in 2008 um, when I was still in college. And that's a government program. And actually putting those 30 acres into wetlands um, let us pay off the farm once and for all. And I just, I like to tell people that because I want people to know that farms can have a really positive impact on rivers. They can have a really healthy, dynamic relationship Every time this river floods, those wetlands flood, and that's good. Those fields that we enrolled in that program, they never should have been taken out of wetlands in the first place. They never should have been farmed. Um, when my parents farmed that land, they wouldn't get a crop most years. Three years out of five, it would flood, and they'd lose everything they'd planted. Um, that's ground that should be wetlands. And so they enrolled it in that government program, and the federal government paid them, and we paid off the farm once and for all. And, and on that ground, we dug ponds and um, and planted about 10,000 trees. And that ground actually um, floods naturally now. There's an influx of water and then those ponds are wet in the spring and they're a beautiful little nursery for turtles and uh, frogs and, and birds. And then they dry up every year in the dry times. You know, in August they're dry as a bone and that's okay. That's a natural cycle, a natural way that our farm integrates with the river. And, you know, hopefully our, our trees that we've planted and all of our neighbors who have done a good job along the river, um, because there are plenty of folks who, who do a good job, well, we're all trying to help clean up the river just a little bit so that by the time this water gets to the Gulf, it's not quite so uh, heavy in nitrogen and maybe it's a little healthier. Liz Brownlee runs Nightfall Farm with her husband, Nate. We're going to end today with a different kind of connection between southern Indiana and points south. Yael Cassander brings us a review of the fifth novel by Bloomington-based author Ian Woolen. While in real life, Bloomington, Indiana has sister-city relationships of its own, Woolen's wildly absurdist take on the concept transpires in a fictional Indiana college town twinned with its counterpart in the Yucatan. Though wickedly satirical, the novel gets its heart from its maelstrom of broken souls longing to find home, as Yael writes. Today on Interstates, and in partnership with Limestone Post magazine, Yael Cassander brings us this review of Ian Woolen's Sister City. It must be one of the central pillars of marketing. Familial relationships sell stuff. We trust a family of brands. We relish the insider status of friends and family discounts. And who's not been lured into pledging for a radio fun drive so that we can be part of the W blah 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 family? Somewhere along the line, someone had the bright idea of invoking a family bond to hawk greater geopolitical harmony. Voila, Sister City. I mean, it's nice to belong and all, but since when did everyone have such warm and fuzzy associations with family? Well, Advertising appeals to our aspirations, and when it comes to family, we aspire mightily. So even though Thanksgiving finds us pre-gaming with nonviolent communication techniques and stocking up on alcohol, somewhere in the back of our mind, there's a Norman Rockwell painting. They keep trotting out that family jive because we keep falling for it. In Bloomington-based author Ian Woolen's fifth novel, Sister City, the dream of family powers a whole diaspora of both literal and spiritual orphans looking for a place to fit in. 
and devising any number of high-flown justifications for their rehoming fantasies, the highest flown of which is a sister city agreement connecting two fictional places, Cave City, a southwestern Indiana college town that's tempting to compare to Bloomington, and Ciudad de la Gruta in the Yucatan, Mexico. Yoked together 20 years prior by a transnational pair of birdwatching buddies, the sister city's future is in jeopardy as we enter the story, as commercial, xenophobic, and crassly political forces threaten the renewal of the agreement. Both sides are rife with politicians of slender ambition. A mayor known as El Plastico for his, quote, do-gooder habit of walking daily to City Hall, picking up plastic bottles along the way. And his Hoosier counterpart, who is, quote, betting his re-election chances on landing a new highway exit and establishing his fair city as a place to pee on the interstate. We meet the woker-than-thou red berade Juan Pablo Chayac, who opposes the sister city agreement as, quote, an outrageous example of gringo cultural imperialism, but is willing to pen the new sister city manifesto in the interest of his Instagram following. Back in Cave City, the horse-riding Sheriff Hooker courts voters with the hashtag HicksForHooker, and with backing from Parents with Boundaries, a PTA posse opposed to the Sister City arrangement in the name of, quote, safe and secure learning environments for our children. Beyond political shenanigans, however, both cities are teeming with an organic multiculturalism that doesn't depend on any bilateral treaty. Jumping cinematically from one side of the border to the other, the novel disorients us in the process with its cast of displaced persons, each with one foot in the other world, longing to find home. The sister-city relationship is just the latest manifestation of this longing. From abuelas to academics, everyone wants to believe in a secret tunnel connecting Indiana quarries to sinkholes in the Yucatan. We humans find a lot of fancy ways to dignify our most basic needs. For all their grandiose visions, Sister City's characters are some wounded puppies. Almost to a person, every one has a painful experience of family and is trying to cobble together a better one. There's an unwed mother who absconded in shame, a black sheep banished for his bipolar disease, children abducted, children abandoned— a son who keeps his mom on ice, a couple whose childlessness drives them apart, another whose parentage dooms them to failure. It's this maelstrom of broken souls that keeps the Sister City Initiative aloft, in between AA meetings and visits to the therapist. In the tradition of John Irving and Kurt Vonnegut, who gets at least one direct salute by way of Cave City Mayor Rosewater, Woolen prefers to laugh than cry at our dysfunctional human condition, delivering biting social critique with tongue permanently ensconced in cheek. Packed with absurdity from one-liners to deeply ironic situations, this is a world where a girl is named Dotcom, because in her Mexican village, cyberspace is still just a magical rumor. It's a world where a Boston preppy gives up on the Midwest when her baggage— on the Pilgrim Relocation Moving Truck, finally catches up with her. Ouch. A reader might get lost in the shuffle of subplots and side characters if it weren't for an exceptionally well-wrought, deeply flawed figure at the center of the narrative and his progress toward that family do-over we're all hoping for. 
Meet Chad O'Shaughnessy of Boston, a, quote, master's-level recovering pothead and newly minted addictions counselor. Chad seems to have spent much of his young life leaning into his identity as a constant source of disappointment. His dad calls him a loser, and his fiance Winnie barely tolerates him. Five years past a drug bust when the story opens, Chad is gung-ho for the adventure of Winnie's one-year teaching gig in the folklore department at Southwest Hoosier State University. But the geographic cure backfires soon after they arrive, when Chad stumbles upon the long-hidden Hoosier branch of his family tree. Confronting the dark family secret knocks him right off the wagon. This time, Chad navigates recovery by going deep into his new community and assembling his own new tribe. While his partner dabbles in local lore as an academic exercise, Chad surrenders his tourist visa and goes all in. As he fumbles along, one day at a time, throwing the baseball with a wayward teen, getting closer with his AA sponsor, and volunteering for the Sister City Initiative, Chad comes into his own. Zooming out, we see parallels to Chad's team building in myriad little families configured by the novel's motley crew. Whether a geriatric menage a trois, a pair of night nurses, a trekkie priest and a one-eyed translator, or an ostensibly gay man who runs off with a woman to raise a pair of orphans, Sister City revels in the strange bedfellows life makes of us on our way to the family reunion. I'm Yael Cassander. Yael reviewed Sister City by Ian Woolen, published in 2021 by Coffeetown Press. This review is produced in partnership with Limestone Post magazine, where you can read the review in its entirety. Limestone Post is an independent nonprofit magazine focused on solutions-based journalism that covers the arts, outdoors, social justice issues, and more in Bloomington and the surrounding areas. That's it for today's Interstates. As always, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Monique Ferdinand, Nick Sly for sharing his poem, Derek Hefferlin, Bob, Anne, and Chuck, who shared their stories from the Mississippi Delta region, Liz Brownlee, and Yael Cassander. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. I want to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University Bloomington, home of WFIU, is built, as well as the generations of workers who built it. All right, time to listen to a place. You've been listening to Footsteps in the Mud by the Muscatatuck River. Thanks to Liz Brownlee for that recording. If you've got some sound, send it my way at wfiu.org slash interstates. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Subliminal, we make the round sound soon.